Welcome to Mediation Today, a program brought to you by Vesnatsa Tichanin, a Canberra lawyer and mediator. Every episode introduces an experienced Australian mediator to talk about mediation training, development, ethics and practice. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the ACT land, the Ngunnawal people. Dear listeners, good morning and welcome to another Monday's Mediation Today. My guest in today's episode is someone from South Australia. And I don't think that I've had many guests from Adelaide. Greg Rooney is my guest. Hello. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Vesna. Welcome to Mediation Today. Thank you. Greg Rooney has been a mediator in private practice in Australia for 30 years. He has facilitated over 200 face-to-face meetings between victims of sexual and physical abuse within religious institutions and religious leaders over the last 14 years. He has also facilitated meetings between victims of abuse within the Australian Defence Force and senior military officers and is currently developing a program for the South Australian government for dealing with claims of abuse within the South Australian Police Force. Greg, together with colleagues Margaret Ross and Barbara Wilson, runs annually a mediation retreat in Tuscany, Italy. I'd love to hear about all of those aspects of your work. However, we have only 25 minutes, so we'll be able to touch on some parts of your work. And as you and I discussed, we'll focus on the most recent writings and thinking about mediation that you've developed. Is that okay with you? That's great, yes. Happy to do that. And you're always welcome to come back, but we can arrange that later on. Oh, great, yes. (laughs) Good. Greg, you say that we tend to treat conflict as something of a failure or something that has gone wrong, something to be rectified or made right. However, also you say conflict is just a signal that something must change. Do you identify what must change? Well, Vesna, when you're dealing with people in conflict, the reason they come to you is because they they are stuck in a dispute or a difference of opinion or just unhappy in a workplace or whatever. And so in a way, this forms a sort of energy for them to actually do something about it. And as a mediator, I see conflict as a form of energy. And if you don't have that energy, people keep being stuck where they are. I see, um, I see, in a way, although people feel conflict is bad, it actually is a, a, a warning sign. It's, a, it's a, a weather vane that something must change. And I think it's always very hard to deal with that. And I think mediation offers a way to work with a professional to be able to try and look at the conflict and work with the other party to see if they can move it forward and go through that stuckness, I call it, to the other side. And I see that it's a transition stage and conflict is telling you it's time to transition into something new. And as you say, just on that, that each mediation in its own way is a microcosm. Could you give our listeners an example of such microcosm, please? And I I would like to hear from those experiences that you've had with the victims of sexual abuse. And, And there is a warning, of course, for people who who can associate uh, these topics uh, with their own experiences, that we will be talking a little bit about that at the moment. 
Yes. Uh, well, I, I, the way I like to think of it is, and I come back the way we look at life, and a lot of us uh, deal with the complexity of life and deal with the upsets that occur and naturally occur in our life and find it difficult to deal with, with something that comes out of the blue, like COVID or some personal event in your life. And in a way, I, I tend to think of it as a bit like a, a life-death cycle, that um, we think we live in a very stable world and we have patterns and we have rituals, but in fact, our life is constantly changing and change is the constant thing. And what I think happens is that when we get stuck in the change, that's the issue of conflict. And in a way, the process of going through the conflict is like ending something and then starting something fresh. So what I say is that mediation is often about necessary endings, that we need to end where you are now and start fresh. So this concept of thinking of life not as a very uh, static pattern-forming thing, it's actually constant change. So that when we go to bed each night, the day ends. When we wake up the next morning, it's a fresh day. So this constant pattern, I think if we think of conflict in that sense, is that there is a flow in conflict and it's helping go through that conflict to the other side. So in a way, it's a release. And I often see that I did a, a mediation earlier this week, which was a difficult one for a landlord in a major shopping centre. And he had a fit out of his shop and he was wanting more assistance from the landlord. And when he came into the mediation, he was uptight. He said, I don't feel like going to work. And our relationship between myself and the landlord and our staff has broken down. We managed to settle it. He didn't get everything he wanted. And when I went out of the room to copy the agreement, when I came back in, there was a total different change. He was talking to the manager. The future opened up to him. He was able to see a way forward. And the relationship, you could just see it in the room, a change in energy. Mm. And that, I think, is, is the change I see. Mm. And uh, that's that microcosm that, that you call um, as part of, of the work and, and the change that we see. And, and that's not only a room. It could be also illustrated as that change of thinking, change of relationship that is almost immediately noticeable. That's and, right. Yes. And I, I think that's what, as a mediator... As you sit back and you notice how people come in very uptight, and I think they really want to settle, but they just don't know how to do it. And I think part of the mediator's role is to have the confidence that they can do it because they look to us and they think, well, we're a professional. And, of course, I've seen many cases that on the face of it look terrible that would never settle, and they do. Yes. So in a way, I think we there like a coach. Come on, you can do that. The great pleasure to see the result in the end when they suddenly the attention goes and they can actually see a way forward. And sometimes it feels as if parties are almost waiting for mediators' permission <laughs> to explore that, something further or to settle. That's right. And they look at you, and I, I think I think I sense people in conflict that haven't been able to deal with it have a sense of loss of loss of power. And I think what mediation does, it allows a safe place for both parties to step back and allow me as a mediator to work with them through the day to actually start to see some developments. And they're only small micro-developments, and I call them adjacent possibles. 
that it's not the solution, but it's something you can do. And oftentimes when one person takes a little step forward, you can see the eyes of the other person open and they realize there's a path and then they will offer something. It slowly moves forward. Are you saying that you enter a mediation equipped with an awareness of what is adjacent possible, as you call it? No, I don't. Um, I think there's a danger for mediators to think ahead. What I think is that I, I, very important to meet the parties before the mediation, to hear their story. And once I hear their story, I try to form what I do in the context of these two stories, finding a new story. And I think once you start that process, out comes these little possibilities. Now, I have no idea what they will be. In fact, I try and not predict it. And oftentimes it surprises myself and the other parties. And we end up often in a totally different solution than both parties at the beginning thought they would get. And that's the magic of mediation. It allows something new and unexpected to emerge. And I really loved the example that you gave about Angela or Angela Merkel. And you you mentioned in your article the book that was released, of course, to coincide with the end of her long-standing top person in in Germany. And um, she was saying that it is important to sometimes just allow the peace in the room to work. That's right. She actually embodied the concept of the adjacent possible she said she would just listen and listen until something came to her and she was just she said she was like a typewriter walker she was just looking to what was the next step and she would wait for the right time and for something to emerge and then she would jump on it and i think that's why she was so successful she actually worked with what she had rather than trying to predict the future and 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 espouse some great nirvana in the end she just works step by step and over the time she was able to achieve a lot and it's so interesting to actually link that to her um, scientific background because she is a scientist with her primary education isn't she she is and i think scientists work that way it's like with climate change all scientists can say is that this is what we think is going to happen and we keep trying so Scientists can't actually have a crystal ball for the future, and that's been used against them by those anti-climate change people who say, well, look, you can't, you, you know, you've made mistakes, or you can't tell us exactly what's going to happen. So I think from a scientific point of view, we work with what we've got and we nudge forward. And every time we take a step, the world changes around us. And that's the principle of the adjacent possible. It's, again, it's a scientific term, and it comes from complexity theory. There's a whole world body on complex systems that we this is the rule we really live in and uh, it's about really that once you take a step even as a small step suddenly a new world opens up to you and there's a lot more opportunities and you take another step so it's really just moving in the direction of where you want to go rather than having some goal at the end this is what i want and trying to clasp your way there it's just a different way of thinking it's a scientific way of thinking and actually with covid it's the way we have to live now. We cannot predict the future. You know, COVID has thrown us all into a different world, but we've actually survived very well. And we've got a whole new world now that didn't exist before COVID. 
Hmm. And it did surprise us. So we need to be prepared for surprises. That's, how, that's what I always think. And, and sometimes those surprises come out of the blue, as, as you, I think, mentioned. But just on that issue of adjacent possible, and you also in your article talk about, or you just mentioned it, that there is that bias theory, you know, we enter into a room with the underlying biases and this and that. And you actually dispute that in a sentence, but I think that there is an, a new article coming up from there. It is. It, um, <laughs> we, we talk about biases, and, um, and I think there's a list of 180 biases if you look on Wikipedia, and there are lots of courses on it. And um, the, the problem with the thinking about biases is that they, the word bias itself is a biased word and it, in, and it implies something negative. In fact, what these biases are really is a way that we human beings are able to make decisions when we don't have enough information. So they're shorthand cuts and they're actually why we as a species are so good and survive so well. And it's different from prejudice. I want to make that clear. Prejudice is when I think uh, all people of a certain skin colour are bad. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about shorthand ways of doing it. And it allows us to actually make really good decisions. And if these biases were so bad, how come we've been such a successful race? And the, the other issue is that the only people without bias are people on the autism spectrum because they can see everything, but they have very uneasy social skills. And with the introduction of AI coming in, which is totally an autistic approach to life with huge data, we actually need our biases to be able to work through it. So in fact, rather than being something bad, there actually is the way we perceive. And in fact, we need to be able to understand we have the biases. And of course, make sure we don't abuse them and we can uh, step prejudice aside. So again, this comes from the scientific community about uh, how we actually uh, see and work in this world. So I think politics, I think the more scientists like Angela Merkel that can get into politics, the better. <laughs> That's interesting. Yes, why not? Facts and figures, <laughs> but That's not right. only that. But then on, on what you somehow just... Um, prompted me to think and, and to say at this moment is, can we say that then artificial intelligence misses emotional intelligence? Well, art artificial intelligence, it, we, get, we are able to, these computers, be able to um, use, it, use it in a very positive way in being able to collect data and get information. But information is not enough. It's how we interpret it and how we use it to live our lives. So the, the, the moral issues, the ethical issues are m far more important now if we just, uh, rather than rely, relying on algorithms and things to direct us, we have to remain in control of our lives and being able to use the data properly and, um, but also when not to use it. Hmm. And from what you're saying so far, I gather that probably our actions stem from those flaws in understanding of what the other person might be thinking, feeling, proposing, what their interests are. And that interpretation is also part of, of the mediation process. Um, do, do, do you encourage people in a way to leave that 
my way, your way at the door? I try not to do, I try to be very minimalist in my approach. Um, and I start the whole mediation process when I meet each of the parties individually. And the first question I ask them is, what's your thoughts about meeting the other person? And what I'm getting from that comment is I'm getting their human reaction. I'm not getting what they want. And what I find I get is a story that comes out in the particular way they express it. And so I'm listening to that story to try and frame what they actually want in the context of their story. And I do it with the other side. And when we come into the joint session, I listen and I let each side hear that story. But because I've already listened to it, I can help shape it in a way for that person so the other person hears what they want in the context of their story. And as the mediation progresses, I suddenly, I, I try to work the joint story. You've both got a problem here. You both want the children. You both, yeah. So I try and find the common story. And then that's, and that's the connection because people understand stories. They might not like the other person's story, but they understand it. They don't like the other person saying, I want A, B, and C. That's just a grab at something that affects them. So I'm, I work with stories, and it's all about what emerges. And, and like Angela Merkel, I'm just taking one more step along the line, and I'm trying to encourage them to take it. And then what I find is one person will make an adjacent possible move that's a bit outside the ordinary, and it opens the eyes of the other person and encourages them to do it. So really, I'm like an orchestra conductor. I'm just trying to get them to work, and I just call it – I track – so where we are now, as you said this, George, and you said that, Mary, is this where we are now? And what it is, it's allowing it to emerge. And that way, I'm not controlling the direction. And although we're in the shadow of the law and there's other requirements, we end up in various different ways and outcome solutions that you don't normally, uh, would, would not normally have predicted. <laughs> That's like those children's books in which you can choose actually the next way forward uh, and and you can skip a page and then end up some somewhere completely different but greg uh, just linking into people coming into your mediation room mediation setting is really all about the and you call it in your article subtle use of time and space and i really couldn't agree more it's important when when i walk into a room that is has been preset by someone for me as a mediator I often go in there and I sort of move the tables and I move the chairs and I, it changes the energy around it. Uh, tell us, please, how do you guide the parties to understand the space in which they found, found themselves and, and also the time in a mediation? Yeah. Well, what one of my colleagues from, uh, who worked with, with us in Tuscany, Barbara Wilson from the UK, has a great saying, time is the mediator's friend. And I really believe that. And we as the mediator slow time down or speed it up depending on, on the circumstances. And that first question I ask in private session when I meet them for the first time, and I do it really slowly, what's your thoughts, George, as we're sitting here? What's your thoughts about meeting Mary next week? And I slide right down and I try and capture George's voice and George might speak slowly or deliberately and I might mimic that but help try and uh, connect and when I meet with Mary Mary might speak a lot faster what's your thoughts Mary and in a way I'm a, I'm sort of getting an a, approval from them for me to speak to them at that, that level at that human level and 
halfway through the mediation, when things are tense, I can go back into a private room and say, George, what's going on? How's you feeling? And I can revisit that real first conversation I had and I can come back to the human level. And mm. often that slows George down and will slow Mary down. So I think we play with time and space. There's a word called temporality, if you look it up. It's about how how space and time can be moved and manipulated. And you see it a lot in movies, particularly of the works of the Italian director, Sierra Di Leone, who did this Good, the Bad and the Ugly. He uses that all the time, space and time. So interesting. Greg, I think that we should schedule another episode and, and talk about some other interesting things that would stem from here that are in that adjacent possible space right. <laughs> for us. Um, I would like you to tell us, and, and probably we'll finish there, and I, I actually made an exception and didn't want to stop you and, and insert a song. So we'll finish with a piece that you've chosen, you'll tell us why. But just before that, a couple of sentences of that Tuscany mediator workshop that you are running. Well, we run, we've, since 2012, we've run every year a retreat. We call it a retreat in a little village uh, south of Florence between Florence and Siena. And it's, a, it's just a, a working village and it's a working winery, no tourists. And we have our mediators from around the world come and we spend the week together in a very earthy atmosphere. Now, we don't teach anything. In fact, what we do is the opposite. We try and get stuff out of our minds to slow us down. And over the week, very experienced mediators can spend time with each other and we can actually talk about things because it's a very lonely existence being a mediator. We work by ourselves. So it's a great re-energizing and it's such a beautiful place and we have a the local, one of the, the brothers cooks a meal for lunch every day for us, a long t- a table Tuscan meal. So it's a very earthy, spiritually in, invigorating week. And uh, we, we had to stop in 2019 because of COVID. We're hoping to go back next June. So... Uh, that would be lovely if we can do that. Lovely. And I'll call you so you'll tell us about it. Dear listeners, this has been Greg Rooney, a very experienced mediator from South Australia. Greg, thank you so much for being my guest. Goodbye, Vesna. Lovely to talk to you. Mm-hmm.